Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, insurance companies are weighing in on the president's response to the millions of canceled health plans that didn't meet requirements under the Affordable Care Act. The president was responding to the rising chorus of protests from both sides of the aisle. So the president offered a public solution, let those folks keep their plans for one more year until a better transition could be worked out. Well, that decision is now not sitting so well with some insurers who say it really puts them in a bind. They have to figure out how to make those plans fit the requirements under the Affordable Care Act, which must include the so-called 10 essential benefits, which is the primary reason that they were canceled in the first place. The final decision, of course, will be left up to state insurance commissioners to approve uh, of the measure in their own states. We'll see how they respond to the president's solution on a state-by-state basis. Well, Mark, I still think that it's a pretty safe bet to say that once most of these folks see what they can find in terms of affordable health insurance in the online insurance marketplaces, they won't be so eager to hang on to the old plans, many of which had very high deductibles and only minimal coverage. But I think this speaks to a broader mindset. People are often pretty resistant to change. But there are many changes on the health care horizon that often get obscured by the rhetoric, most especially uh, the impact technology is having. And that is something that our guest today is quite knowledgeable about. Steve Lieber is the president and CEO of HIMSS Worldwide. That's the Healthcare Information Management System Society. Their mission is simple but pretty vast in scope, improving healthcare through information technology. And he'll be talking about some of the many breakthroughs underway that are poised to transform traditional healthcare as we know it. Laurie Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, will be stopping by. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please contact us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. We'll get to our interview with Stephen Lieber in just a moment. But first, here's our Producer Marianne O'Hare with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The White House is still sticking to its promise of a functioning online insurance marketplace by November 30th, but they're scaling back the numbers. In a recent press briefing, White House spokesman Jay Carney said one in five Americans who tries to log on to the site won't ultimately end up buying insurance on healthcare.gov. In spite of the fixes to the website, there are some people who just aren't comfortable purchasing insurance online. And for others, their tax situations are too complex to calculate the subsidies online without assistance. The White House is considering other options to deal with that issue, including adding more trained navigators who can assist customers over the phone or in person. Meanwhile, technicians working to repair the healthcare.gov website have fixed most of the problems that stymied health insurance customers from creating accounts. The fixes mean the system can easily handle 20 to 25,000 people in the area of the site where they choose their insurance plans. Meanwhile, as predicted, the pace of enrollment has picked up significantly since the launch of healthcare.gov, doubling the amount from the week before. And what's a cardiologist to do? Folks on the front lines of treating cardiovascular disease had been given a new tool for assessing risk for heart attack and stroke, but turns out this new online calculator meant to help them determine a patient's need for cholesterol treatment is flawed. It's based on 20-year-old data, and heart attack and stroke rates are much lower now. The new calculator released by the American Heart Association exaggerated the true risk of heart attack or stroke by an average 100%. But the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology don't plan to change or eliminate the calculator, in part because there's no good alternative. 
I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with H. Stephen Lieber, President and CEO of Healthcare Information and Management Systems Society Worldwide, also known as HIMSS Worldwide. It's a global cause-based not-for-profit healthcare association focused on achieving better health with information technology. Mr. Lieber serves on the board of directors of HIMSS Worldwide and its related organizations. He's also one of the founders of the Certification Commission for HIT and the Health Information Technology Standards Panel aimed at the U.S. effort to promote health IT interoperability. Steve, welcome to Conversations in Healthcare. Great. Thank you very much. Well, we're not going to talk about the problems with the Affordable Care Act's website. <laughs> it does involve technology, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, but we really want to talk about the great work uh, you and your organization have been doing on the front lines of promoting a culture that supports the use of information technology to improve healthcare delivery. And so for our listeners who don't know about HIMSS, uh, could you describe your organization for us and what is your mission exactly and how do you see it leading to the triple aim of improved access, better quality of care, and reduced costs? Sure. HIMSS is a more than 50-year-old not-for-profit cause-based organization. functions globally. We have offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, and we also do programs in the Middle East. The vision of the organization is better health with information technology. Information technology are those systems and applications that carry information. So we're not talking about medical diagnostic or medical devices or or things that are involved in uh, the direct delivery of care, but the the various uh, applications and computer systems that take information from a variety of places. In other words, it's the elimination of the old clipboard when you checked in for an electronic system that's able to follow you around wherever you are receiving treatment. Uh, for so long, information in healthcare was tied up in paper records. But paper records don't move very well. As a chronic patient stays with a variety of practitioners over a long period of time, that file gets thick, and retrieving information becomes hard. And so what happens is care is not well coordinated. Uh, Unnecessary care is provided because test results don't catch up with the patient as they're moved from uh, one specialist to another. And so this really gets to the issue of, of triple aim in terms of improving quality, reducing cost, increasing access, all of those things are a function of electronic information systems. Who we work with is a variety of stakeholders, starting with government. Government is a huge influencer, not only in the United States, but around the world, in healthcare policy. That's generally where policy is set in, in healthcare. Even in a private system like the United States, we follow the lead of the federal government as it establishes the national health policy, even more pronounced in European and Asian countries. Uh, the companies that make these products, we work very closely with them in terms of ensuring that there is a degree of standardization. So one uh, commercial product will be able to communicate data to another. 
we work with clinicians, uh, administrators, uh, patient organizations in trying to move the healthcare system from really a, a fairly archaic one to one which is 21st century, able to, to realize the promise of healthcare by eliminating errors, uh, making sure better information is at the point of care. Well, Steve, we recently had one of the great champions of health IT, Farzad Mostashari, the recent national coordinator of uh, health IT for HHS on our show. And he put some of this in perspective by talking about the incredible milestones that we have achieved in health IT so far, really in uh, relatively few short years since two major pieces of legislation were passed. One, of course, the Affordable Care Act, but the other, the High Tech Act. Maybe you can speak to how these two pieces of signature legislation have brought us closer to the improved healthcare delivery system through a better use of information technology. Sure, Margaret. Those are two very good pieces of legislation to point to that have dramatically changed the landscape of the American healthcare system. The 2009 American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the stimulus law as we remember it, you know, the, the country was in terrible uh, economic situation. And so early days of the Obama administration, they passed this legislation, which was full of all kinds of things related to recovery. But it also had that other R word in its title, reinvestment. And the administration picked three major policy areas, education, energy, and health care to put significant investments in that piece of legislation to move America to a different place. And we can do a little bit of a compare and contrast with our neighbors to the north in Canada, where similar focus on the improvement of information systems, but without an investment act. And so what we've seen is that in Canada, uh, according to an eight-stage model that we've developed that uh, tracks the adoption of information technology in uh, hospitals, seen very little change in terms of movement up that scale. And the higher the stage level, the more sophisticated level of IT adoption. While in the United States, there has been a dramatic change from the stage two, stage three to stage four and stage five, which are, as I said before, much higher levels of IT adoption. And all of this has occurred since 2009. So there's clearly no doubt about it that uh, the High Tech Act very much created the stimulus necessary for hospitals to be able to invest because let's remember our reimbursement system. You don't get paid for handling information. You get paid for doing something to somebody. And so you, you get paid when, when you do something to somebody or you treat them, but you don't get anything for having better information for which to treat that patient. This law changed that for a short time period here in creating this incentive. Then you've got the 2010 uh, Affordable Care Act, which creates uh, really much more around the reimbursement issues, the excess issues, far less to do with technology other than it creates situations where you won't get paid. For example, if you treat a patient in a hospital and they're readmitted within 30 days under certain conditions, you don't get paid because the assumption is and the research shows you didn't do what you were supposed to. Well, 
having technology in place will allow you to better identify those patients most likely to be readmitted in a short period of time and do the right things to prevent that from happening. So there's an indirect effect that the ACA Act uh, also has in terms of driving greater adoption of information technology. Steve, I think it's important, and we've done talked a little bit about it, about thinking about some of the barriers that still exist to efficiently implement and deploy health IT, as well as meaningful use of data. And you were a member of the original Health Information Technology Standards Panel, and it's a public-private partnership to develop and promote interoperability standards for health IT, an area where we're still seeing quite a few challenges. And I was surprised to read that you still think we're at the sort of the gold rush phase of innovation here in health tech development, that there are thousands, tens of thousands of new uh, IT systems and apps being developed, but they're not communicating with each other. I was kind of surprised. The little I know, I thought uh, HL7 and others were really designed to make people talk to each other, but it still sounds like it's a Tower of Babel. So what's involved in setting these standards and how should they be functioning in the healthcare marketplace? Mark, the good news is that it's better. Uh, I've been at the helm of HIMSS for nearly 14 years now. And uh, when I first came in, the word interoperability didn't even exist. Um, The concept of systems being able to integrate was the word used at the time, was there, and a tremendous amount of effort was put into the writing of interfaces that basically translated one system into another. It's a cumbersome, expensive, lengthy approach to solving the problem. The problem is that we don't have a system that really, and I'm not talking about information system, but a process which really drives uh, absolute adoption of common standards. Uh, We're just now getting to the point where there is an acceptance that the the data needs to be given back to the patient so that they can share it with other practitioners. Things that if we sort of compare it to other uh, activities that we do, and, and the financial system's the easiest one, is that the the demand for integrated systems became uh, absolute very early on. For those of us in, in my age group, we can remember the time when you couldn't go to every ATM and get money out. You had to go to ones in mm-hmm. your network. Well, the public didn't put up with that for very long because we're much more mobile than that. We've got to be able to access, and money is very important to us. Patients and citizens still have not gotten to that point where we take accountability for our health care and insist that we have control of it. So that same sort of driving force for universal adoption of standards doesn't exist. There are healthcare organizations who now put into their uh, request for proposals uh, certain requirements to ensure better interoperability. But the other thing to remember is that a healthcare record is far more complex than a financial record. It's not uncommon to hear uh, a CIO in a hospital talk about the hundreds of information systems that they manage within their environment. Well, all of those, or many of them, are developed by different companies. 
There are HL7 standards. There are other standards organizations. Different kinds of data have different standards. Big problem is we still don't have that absolutely compelling case for everybody to adopt them exactly the same way. So that brings in one final piece on this issue of standardization is that a physician group looks at a patient record and says, I want things this way or that way. That's customization. Well, once you start moving things around, having it displayed differently, having it captured differently, and that sort of thing, suddenly makes that system not compatible with someone else's, and you have to map them to one another. So what we've tried to do, and there's generally universal acceptance of this, is that a very thin level of data sitting on top of a patient record is established in a in a, a universally adopted format. So the, the critical information that a physician or nurse must have about a patient does flow from one to another. That's the first step that we've been able to achieve. And across all of your major electronic health records, and it is part of the meaningful use requirements that the government's imposed for uh, eligibility to receive these incentive payments, you've got to have that. Well, Steve, in our experience as we come in on uh, closing out close to a decade since first adopting electronic health records is that we absolutely are seeing the meaningful use payoff. We're seeing our ability to uh, make substantive improvements in the quality of care through health data management. Maybe give us a sense of how does this look in other parts of the world where HIMSS is conducting surveillance and research on uh, on health IT. Who are the real standard bearers out there that you think have, have uh, substantially scaled the heights of meaningful use of electronic health records and technology? Margaret, in the United States, let's set the the baseline here, pretty high adoption, 80% of U.S. hospitals have at least begun the process of adopting full-fledged electronic medical records. Physician practices, you're, you're moving in on, on 50%. Now, when you go over to Europe, uh, the European system, by virtue of how they pay for care, which is much more centralized at the regional or national level, they focused on the continuum of care far longer than we have, which starts with primary care, not starts with hospitalization, which is the way we have operated for a very long time. So in the Scandinavian countries, for example, you find virtually 100% of the primary care practices are linked by an electronic medical record nationwide. So huge, huge progress there, and not recent. I mean, this this will go back six to ten or more years ago. Um, their hospital uh, organizations have a level of IT adoption that significantly trails uh, that in in the U.S. Uh, and, and again, it's it's that focus on the continuum of care, not so much the uh, acute uh, phases. Uh, So I guess in in summary, I'd say there are places where the adoption of technology on a societal level is better than in the United States, particularly with primary care. Now, when I look at a micro level, there's certainly no better examples of IT adoption anywhere in the world than you'll find in the United States, and more of it. So, you know, we, we what we've done by virtue of our private health system is those who have the resources 
recognize the benefits in the reduction of medical errors, the improvement of quality outcomes, uh, the improvement of profitability through the adoption of technology, and they've invested. Uh, we don't have a system that takes care of those uh, inner city, rural, very small hospitals who don't have those kinds of resources or primary care practices to make sure they can achieve the same level. So we have some of the best healthcare technology in the world in the United States, but we don't have the best healthcare information technology system in the world. We're speaking today with H. Stephen Lieber, President and CEO of Healthcare Information and Management Systems Society Worldwide, also known as HIMSS Worldwide. It's a global, cause-based, not-for-profit healthcare association focused on achieving better health with information technology. Steve, there's another issue that has to be examined as we look at this proliferation of health information technology, and that's broadband. And at a recent speech, you shared a pretty astounding fact that in uh, by 2016, we'll be sharing 1.2 million video minutes over the internet every second, and there's going to be going to be required an impressive amount of broadband capability that you say we just don't have, which is surprising given all of the private sector folks who have been selling lots of internet capacity. So. Tell us, what's the big picture? Who's keeping track of the national broadband capabilities, by the way, and how do we stack up against the rest of the world? It's a subject we're all watching. Uh, I mean, broadband is the movable type printing press of, of this period. The United States is in the upper end of broadband connections. Uh, in 2012, we had about the same level of broadband connections as Japan. But two countries, for example, France and South Korea, had about half again as many connections. You know, we're, we're in a in the place everybody else is. We've learned a lot. Uh, if you go back 10, 15 years ago, uh, in terms of uh, you know just coming out of the dial-up modem phase into now Wi-Fi, we think is being fairly ubiquitous, but it's really not. You know, for those of us that live in cities, we don't find it difficult at all. When you start getting out uh, from major metropolitan areas, it, it drops off. And on the healthcare side, there's just no question about it. The ability to transmit information, images over distances uh, is, is critical. Uh, the uh, concentration of medical expertise is has a relationship to uh, metropolitan areas. Just like the availability of broadband, the availability of specialists is far greater if you live in a metropolitan area than if you live uh, way out in, in the rural areas of, of the United States. And so the ability to connect those areas uh, with high quality, high resolution, high speed uh, connections is absolutely critical for us to be able to uh, achieve um, the the objectives of high quality health care wherever you might be. Steve, you have multiple offices around the country and the world where you conduct ongoing research and outreach, but you just opened up a new kind of enterprise in Cleveland. It's called the HIMSS Innovation Center, described as a year-round destination for audiences from healthcare providers to developers who want to better understand how the sharing of patient health information works, as well as vendors who want to introduce a new product to rigorous testing. So tell us, what was the impetus to place this innovation center in Cleveland, and what are you anticipating is going to emerge from this new innovation hub? I've got to give credit to the county officials there. 
in conjunction with the redevelopment of the convention center, a decision was made to build uh, adjacent to that convention center uh, a global center of health innovation. Uh, and this building is attracting organizations who are focused on looking at the issues of cost, quality, and access and seeing what can we do to help drive thinking and actions to a different place. So it was a natural for us because it was going to be, is going to be a gathering place for these types of companies and, and physicians and other clinicians who are focused on finding uh, the right keys to success in improving healthcare. And so what we're doing is using this facility as a place where we will, one, test uh, products. Uh, our, our focus is on those that are primarily available on the market. We're offering the ability to test those products against one another to ensure their interoperability. And the impetus really is that the center was there. There are others who are going to be engaged in similar activities. There are audiences that are going to come to Cleveland to see this sort of thing. So it was a great opportunity for us to leverage the focus that's going to come to that global center uh, for our purposes of helping drive the marketplace towards a new place. We've been speaking today with H. Stephen Lieber, president and CEO of HIMS Worldwide. You can learn more about his organization's work by going to HIMSS.org. Steve, thanks so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Margaret, Mark, it was my pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, in late October, Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius testified on Capitol Hill about the troubles with the health insurance exchange website. She said it was illegal for her to obtain insurance herself on the exchanges, which led Colorado Representative Cory Gardner to accuse her of lying. It turns out Sebelius is right. She didn't explain this to Gardner when he was questioning her, but the exchange plans can't be sold to Medicare enrollees. And Sebelius, in addition to having insurance through the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, is a Medicare enrollee. Gardner asked Sebelius why she wasn't in the exchange, and she initially said she has affordable coverage through work, so she's not eligible. That's not correct. Those getting employer-sponsored insurance could buy exchange plans, but it wouldn't make financial sense in most cases, as employers often make sizable contributions toward workers' premiums. Gardner urged Sebelius to find a way to join the exchange, and she blurted out, it's illegal, with no explanation. Gardner later accused her of lying, but as HHS explained, she also has Medicare Part A, making it illegal for an exchange plan to be sold to her. Some have suggested she could give up Medicare, but she would have to also renounce Social Security and pay back any benefits that she had received. Meanwhile, Gardner and other members of Congress and their staffers are required by the Affordable Care Act to get insurance on the exchanges in 2014. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, 
Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Outgoing New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is leaving his post with another public health feather in his cap. Launched in May of 2013, the City Bike Bike Sharing Program has, in a few short months, reached a milestone. In the first five months since the program launched, City Bike users have logged over 10 million miles in over 5 million rides, far outstripping similar programs in other cities throughout the United States. The program funded by Citibank allows subscribers to join either on an annual fee of $95 or for daily or weekly rates at a far reduced price. Members are given a key that will unlock any of the 6,000 bikes found at the 330 city bike stations in Manhattan and Brooklyn. How popular is the bike sharing program? Very. They're reaching an average daily ridership of 35,000. 10 million miles of pedal power requires significant exercise output. The estimated number of calories burned since the program began in May 403 million, the equivalent of 732,000 Big Macs. Since taking office, Mayor Bloomberg has launched the first city-wide smoking ban in buildings and launched the first-in-the-nation ban on trans fats in restaurants, reducing exposure to secondhand smoke and dangerous food additives. The bike sharing program has been so successful, the city has plans to scale the program up to all five boroughs adding hundreds of miles of bike trails and thousands of bikes to newly developed bike stations. Chicago and Washington, D.C. have similar programs and have plans to scale up their efforts as well. An affordable bike sharing program that has encouraged hundreds of thousands of city dwellers and visitors to exercise their way to their destination, enhancing their health in the process. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcasts from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.